Edsel is going to read. We've been uh, practicing for the last couple, just last year and this year, through the Lent season, some different candles that remind us of different aspects of this time of year. The green candle from last week was, do you remember? You don't have to. It's about forgiveness and the new life that we receive from forgiveness. Today, it's about glory in heaven. That's okay. And you don't you didn't need to know that. I, I'm putting you on the spot. But that's what the yellow kind of represents is the glory of God. And uh, the light, we'll hear a, bit, a little bit about that. By the way, the Bible was designed, written, to be read out loud. So this is usually how most Christians in all of history have heard the word of God. Okay, I'm reading from Matthew 5, Acts 3, and Luke 23. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on, a, on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Acts 3, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By, the faith, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So what happens if the candle doesn't light? Okay, there it is. <clears throat> I'd like to start by calling attention to a couple of things in the bulletin. Uh, three things, one, two of, the, of which are in the bulletin, one is not on the back page. One is on, um, this is not in the bulletin, on March 14th, Saturday, March 14th. It's in a couple of weeks. We're having a, um, a two-hour from 10 to 12 in the morning. Uh, a new elder orientation, if you will, for those of you that are interested in one day becoming an elder and learning what we're about, 
Or if you just want to come learn what elders do. So it's open to everyone in the congregation. We'd love for as many of you want to to come. And we're going to talk about what's our, what are the legal re uh, requirements for being an elder? What are the biblical and theological requirements? What are we trying to accomplish? So if that interests you, well, let me invite you to come. Let the uh, office know, or you can email me or Mark, either one, and uh, we will have a good time. The uh, second thing, this one, these next two actually are on here, is we have an inquirer's class coming up on Sunday, March 22nd, following the second service. I just want to bring that to your attention. If you are relatively new or you don't know much about why we do what we do, let me invite you to come to that. This is the first step towards becoming a member, but it doesn't require that you become a member. That's how you come and learn about the church. So we have a couple hours we spend there as well. And then on March 29th, we have one of our baptism Sundays. So if uh, God is leading you to be baptized, talk to Mark or me or call the office, send an email, whatever you'd like, and uh, we'll have a conversation. We have a baptism Sunday coming up, and that's a fun time. If you've not been here on a baptism Sunday, I look at that as one of the high points of what we do as a church is to welcome people into the faith. Uh, they've gotten to a point where they want to publicly proclaim and confess that they believe in the Lord. And that's what we do with baptism. Okay, today, as Mark said, we're talking about I am the light of the world. And so let's start with a question. I'm, I suspect that almost all of you, if not all of you, find yourself in kind of dark places from time to time, confusing places, places that are hard to understand and make sense. We express it in language like, why did God do that? Why did God do that to me? God, where are you? Um, I'm trying to figure out what the Lord wants me to do. There's a many ways that we express ourselves when we're looking for clarity, when we're looking to make sense out of a world that is often confusing, always broken, sometimes hurtful to us. We're trying to make sense of where the Lord is and what he's doing. When Christ came and said, I am the light of the world, he is addressing that very topic right there. But in order to get to the place where we can say comfortably, this is what this is how the Lord connects with us. We have some steps to go through to make that happen. I'm not going to go through all the background behind I am. I'm just going to summarize it. If you didn't listen, if you weren't here last week's sermon or you slept through it, either one, um, feel, I'd encourage you to download it and listen to what Mark said because Mark did more work on the background of I am. The summary is that in uh, Exodus 3, when Moses He's gone before the burning bush, and the Lord says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Okay, that's a pretty daunting thing to do, to go to the head of state and say, uh, let all these people go. <laughs> but that's what God asked him to do. So he asks a very reasonable question. Well, Pharaoh is just not going to let me walk away with your people, um, especially with your plan of hardening his heart, making him a little stubborn in this. He's going to ask me, who is this God? that sent me. So what should I tell him? What's your name? Because all the gods had names, right? All the gods had names like uh, rock, tree, heaven, sea, all the natural, I mean, all the gods of the ancient world were named after things in creation. So God does something very intriguing. He says, tell him, tell him I am has sent you. I am? Yeah, I am. It's kind of a mysterious Word, I am, we never use that word by itself, do we, that verb? We often say, I am something, I am going to the store, I'm good looking, that's what Mark said this morning with my 
attire on from Nepal, right? We always fill it in. But God doesn't. He says, I am. That's my name. That's the name that he's known by from then on. That's his name. And so, I am what? I am what? Well, the rest of the story of Scripture is filling out the answer to that. I am. So when we get into the Gospel of John, we find out that Jesus, he uses the I am verb many times because it's part of our normal language, part of his normal language. But seven times he makes very bold statements. I am the bread of life. And this week, I am um, totally drew a blank. I am the light of the world. <laughs> What's the sermon about today? Somebody help me. <laughs> I am the light of the world. This is the second Sunday of Lent. Lent is the, the season that prepares us, walks us up to the cross, where we watch him die and then celebrate with our hands raised his resurrection from the dead, the empty tomb. That's what Lent is about. The way Lent came about, by the way, is it's an honor. It's honoring of Jesus's 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness on our behalf. So when you start with Ash Wednesday and you count through Easter Sunday and you take out the Sundays and you take out uh, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, you have 40 days left. So Sundays are always days that we celebrate and we feast together. And the rest of the time, we are honoring what the Lord has done. That's where the 40 days came from with Lent. That's why some of your traditions talk about what are you giving up for Lent, right? Some of you come from past, from traditions that emphasize that because that's a memorial, that's honoring what the Lord did. He fasted for us. So we're in the second season of Lent and we're walking our way through these seven statements of, of Jesus. I am the light of the world. Basically what he's doing here is he's claiming divinity. He's using the name of God um, very carefully all the way through in his message. And um, the Pharisees got it because several times when he makes these statements, they try to kill him. In fact, they do in this passage right here. They try to kill him because they recognize what he's saying there. Okay, so in order to jump into the passage in John 8, I am the light of the world, <clears throat> this is actually big, much a part of a much bigger passage which starts in John 7. It's the Festival of Tabernacles. So the Festival of Tabernacles was one of the three great festivals that the people of Israel had to gather every year. Deuteronomy 12 forbade people from worshiping except at the temple and together as a nation. So wherever people moved, three times a year, God expected them to all gather at the temple to celebrate and to worship. This is one of those festivals. God promised to take care of their crops and their animals and all of those things. When they came together, he would watch out and protect them. So you can picture this time. This is a, a festival that's eight days long, the Festival of Tabernacles. People from all around the world are gathering. So Jerusalem is not very big. At the time of David, it was only about six acres. I mean, that's as big as all of the land we own here. It's not that big. And so there is probably a million people that gathered. So people are everywhere. The streets are full of them. The suburbs, the, you know, outside the city gates are just packed full. And they get together and they celebrate what God has done, especially in the 40-year wanderings where they wandered around after Egypt. So we have Passover, which celebrates being led out of Egypt. That's when the angel of death passed over 
all of the firstborn children of Israel. So that was the night that, that Pharaoh kicked them out and they, Egypt expelled them. So then they wandered for 40 years and the festival of tabernacles reminds them and is a celebration of that 40-year period where God took care of them. So what happened in the 40 years? They wandered around. Two things happened constantly. One is you have a whole bunch of people. It's a nation. And where are they? Are they in a city? No, where are they? In a desert. Okay. Where do they get water? Well, we have a couple of accounts recorded where God provided miraculously. I don't believe those are the only two times. I think God provided water for them constantly, took care of them. You have to have water. How are you going to wash your clothes? How are you going to bathe? How are you going to drink for 40 years in the desert? But then the second thing that happened was at no time were they apart from God. You had the pillar of cloud by day, which became a pillar of fire at nighttime. So wherever you were in the camp, you could look over at the center of the camp and there was a pillar there of fire or cloud symbolizing and reminding you of God's constant presence and protection and care. He's there. So the two parts of this festival that are tradition and go on and on is that they would have a water ceremony symbolizing God's care for them with water, and then they would have a light ceremony symbolizing God's watch and protection over them. Both of those elements are there. So we're going to take a look at those because they're both here. So if you look in John chapter 7, verse 37, let's talk about the water first because I believe this is a necessary part of what it means to find clarity in the world around us, in a dark and broken world. So verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a very loud voice, he shouted, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. <clears throat> if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, as part of the festival, what they would have done Every day, the priests, the Levites, and the people, they would have gone to the Pool of Siloam. They would have had a, some kind of pitcher, probably a golden pitcher, dipped it in the water, made their way back to the temple, and the priests would pour it out at the base of the altar, symbolizing God's constant care for them, remembering what he did for 40 years to remind us of God's care for us today. During this period of time, the, I mean, during this event, as they were going back to the temple, the Jews would blow the the shofar, the large instruments that you've seen, perhaps on TV or in pictures, and they would walk around the altar and they would sing Psalm, the Psalms 113 to 118. They would sing them together. So picture just for a moment, you're all scattered around in different places. Uh, you actually know what that's like because a lot of you are not from here. And then three times a year, you gather at the temple and you're seeing cousins and friends from other places. And, and you can just picture that, can't you? The joy and the excitement. And you start singing together. And, as, and you sing all through the seven days. This is an eight-day festival. So you sing through the first seven days these psalms. Now just listen to one, some of these words. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both, for now, both now and forevermore. Or Psalm 114, the next one. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from... Uh, when Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a foreign tongue, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. We became God's dwelling place, his home. Or Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Psalm 116, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. 
Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. Psalm 17, a very short psalm, two verses. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, all you nations. That's why we exist, is to tell the nations about the Lord. When I first became aware of this church looking for a pastor, I looked at several key things, and one of which is our mission statement. Do you know how our mission statement begins? Going passionately. And you guys captured my heart with two words. That's who I am. That describes me. By the way, thank you for sending me to Nepal. I will be working with about 50 to 60 young pastors, men and women, um, who are mostly new converts, one to two years in the Lord, except for the third-year students. They're a little bit longer. And they are preparing to go plant churches throughout the Himalayas. That's why they're there. And, um, and then we also do a pastor's conference where they invite pastors to come back in for times of refreshing once or twice a year. So I do this every year. I go to Nepal in March, and I go to Mozambique in August. I do the same thing in Mozambique, South Africa. So thank you for doing that. <clears throat> Praise the Lord, all you nations. We want to see all the nations standing before the throne, don't we? Isn't our heart? That, shouldn't that be our heart? Going passionately? Well, then you have Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So you can just picture this water celebration where they're pouring water out, remembering what God has done and singing together. But then Jesus comes along and he challenges them. Whoever is thirsty, come to me. He begins to redefine this Jewish ritual around, around water. Water is very prevalent in John. In fact, that's what he does with the woman at the Samaritan well. The Samaritan woman, remember the well? If you only knew who you were speaking to, then you would know that I can give you water that wells up inside and becomes a fountain. A well, a water that you'll never thirst again. Which is very intriguing. It's a paradox because the very fact that Jesus gives us water that quenches our thirst creates thirst. So we get thirstier and thirstier as we get closer to the Lord. And as we get thirstier and thirstier, he gives us more to drink. I would argue that um, that's the first step in beginning to understand clarity, beginning to understand what God is doing, is cultivate a hunger, or as Paul says, desire the pure milk of the word. You can do that. That's your choice. You can choose to make this a priority, and you can choose to, to, to pursue the Lord, or you can choose not to. It's your choice, not mine. I've already decided what I want to do. It's your choice. So the water that the Lord gives quenches and then creates more thirst. The um, water was all throughout Jewish theology. You find water connected with the new covenant and the coming of the Messiah. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. This is the new covenant. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. It'll be like cool, refreshing water. That's what it'll be like. Now remember where Israel is, they're in a desert land. So water is a very good metaphor to help them understand refreshment, thirst, care, all of that. So Ezekiel 36, when the Spirit comes, it'll be like cool, refreshing water. 
Joel 2.28, which Peter quotes at Pentecost. I will pour out my spirit on all people. That's water imagery, isn't it? Just like he pours the water out at the base of the altar, I will pour out my spirit on all of you. That's a gift from the Lord. So he uses this water imagery all throughout the scriptures. He uses it in Zechariah 14. We'll come back to that because that's also talking about this festival here. So when the Messiah comes, all believers will find life-giving refreshment in him. Jesus identified that this life-giving water flows from him and it has been fulfilled in him. Now, there are many places in the Old Testament where we could look at the water imagery. You look at Ezekiel, for instance, toward the end. And he takes Ezekiel out there and he says, what, what is, what's happening? Son of man, he says, I see water around my feet. Uh-oh, water's up to my ankles. Whoops, water's up to my knees. Whoop, water's up to here. And the water's flowing from Jerusalem out. Okay? And so this water imagery is found many places in Scripture to communicate life, refreshment, care, all of those things. And it's always pictured as coming from the temple and from Jerusalem. So when Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me. Do you realize what just happened in world history? All those, prophe- those prophecies and passages, illusions, metaphors, they just found their fulfillment. They just found their home in Jesus. It has been fulfilled in Jesus. The only requirement, the only requirement is in the very next verse, verse 38. Whoever believes in me he had just said, comes to me, so you have to approach Jesus, and then you have to believe. You have to move toward the cross. By the way, that's what we're doing for Lent, isn't it, as a congregation? Aren't we moving toward the cross for seven weeks here? And we'll be so glad on Easter Day when we get to celebrate what God has done. Resurrection, the proof to us that God is real. The proof. And so you have to come to Jesus and you have to believe in him. That's the only requirement. So this creates conflict right away. What are you going to do? It's your choice. It's not mine. I've already made my choice. What are you going to do? This created all kinds of conflict. By the time you get to um, verse 47 and 48 all the way down through 52, they are pretty upset and angry and incensed. They made their choice. What are you going to do? Okay, then when we pick it up, the story again in verse 12 of chapter 8, we're still in the same place, sitting in the temple. And what do we see? When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. So we have the light ceremony now. For seven days, they had gone into the temple and lit in the menorahs, the candles. You've seen the seven candles symbolizing God's constant protection and presence with them because the pillar never left their presence for 40 years. God was present with them. He led them. He watched over them. He cared for them. So you see how this festival is celebrating the 40 years. God provided water. So they threw out the water. God provided light all the time, and so they light the candles. Does that make sense to you? Okay, those are the two opportune times that Jesus spoke. I think when, the, when he poured the water out the next day, he said, I am, uh, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. They would light the candles, and Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
So while they were lighting this world, this, uh, lighting these candles, they would sing Psalm 120 through 134. These are called the Psalms of Ascent. When the people gathered, I told you they would begin singing together, they would start climbing the steps of the temple and they would sing these psalms together. Now again, picture the joy and the excitement here because you haven't seen some of your family or friends for a whole year. They live in another part of the world perhaps. And all of a sudden you have all these people connecting. As a, can, you, can you sense the joy and the excitement that would come from the nation being together? They would climb the steps and they would sing these psalms of ascent, talking about God's greatness, His glory. They're very familiar to you if you were to read them. So that's kind of the image that's going on. The men would dance. The later rabbis tell us that during the festival of tabernacles that went eight days, they would dance and dance and dance 24 hours a day. So here's the scene. You're in Jerusalem. All these people, everybody moves out of their house and they build these booths or these tents or these tabernacles. It's like a big camping vacation. That's what it is. For those of you that camped outdoors have done that. When you get together with friends, isn't that a blast? And that's what they're doing for eight days. They're living in these tents because that's what the Israelites did for 40 years. So they're doing the water ceremony and they're singing these psalms. Then they're doing the light ceremony and they're singing these other psalms. And the men are dancing all night long. The music's going. It's a big party. That's the festival of tabernacles. We're this temple of the Lord. When the world looks at us, do they see us dancing and celebrating? That's what we're supposed to do, remembering the Lord. Is that what they see when they look at us? I hope so. So the light ceremony committed, com commemorated the pillar of fire and the gift of light. Now I'm going to read to you Zechariah because these all come together in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah, this is one of the prophecies. This is talking about the day of the Lord. In verse 1, a day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. On that day, verse 6, there will be no sunlight, no cold, frosty darkness, because this is when the Lord comes, by the way. It will be a unique day that they are known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. When evening comes, there will be light. Think about the pillar of fire. Okay, we have a glimpse of it right there. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. There it is again, that imagery. Water flows. Half to the east and half to the west. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Philippians 2, God has given to the Son his name, the only name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, that Jesus is Lord, he is God, to the glory of God the Father. That's why we stake our existence and our belief on Jesus and the cross. That's why. Because all of this comes together in the Messiah, Jesus. He's the one. And then it says the whole land from, it names these places, um, will become like the Arabah. Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin Gate to the side of the first gate, it will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. Verse 16, when the survivors are from the nations, then the survivors from the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This is talking about the new earth. We get to celebrate this from now on. We are made for partying. 
We are. We get to celebrate it from now on. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. Oh, we're back to water. Rain is always a blessing from the Lord. And he just goes on and talks about it. So these come together, the Festival of Tabernacles, with the water flowing out of Jerusalem. They all come together in Zechariah 14, and the Jewish rabbis recognize that that was a prophecy about when the Messiah comes. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, he is showing the culmination of all of that in his person, in him. It's from Jesus. He challenges it. He is the true light replacing the Jewish festival. He is the true light. His life or his light brings life. It brings clarity. It brings understanding. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness again, but will have the light of life. You heard one of the children. Clarity. That's how they described it. That's my word for it, but you make, can make sense of the world around you. The response of the Jewish leadership demonstrated that they not only did they not understand it, but they didn't accept it. Not at all. So Jesus' statements call for a decision. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. What are you going to do? I've made my choice. It doesn't do any good to exhort you because it's a choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to follow? Are you going to take up your cross? Be willing to be crucified? That's the choice. So what does it mean to walk in darkness? Let's finish with this. Walking in darkness, it means making sense of the world according to human standards. In the ongoing dialogue with the leaders where they're contesting everything, in verse 15, they accuse him of appearing as his own witness, which was against the law. So he says in verse 15, Jesus says, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. So it's defining the, your world according to human standards. How do, you, uh, how do you define success? It's according to how much money you've made, the high level you've attained in your profession, how fast you ski. I'm getting faster and faster because I have people helping me. How do you define it? Do you find it according to the world's standards? You have a choice to make. The second thing it means, what, what, what walking in darkness means, is it means walking away from Jesus and never learning to know him. Look in verse 19. They asked him, where's your father? A little bit of snide remark here, because they know his background. Because later on they say, at least we know our father. So where's your father? And he says, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So walking in darkness means you turn away from the Lord. How frequently throughout the week do you do that? Do you turn away or do you turn to the Lord? Finally, it means defining ourselves by the values of the world. Verse 23, you are from, the from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So we, do we define ourselves from heavenly, a heavenly position, from a spiritual orientation, from a position of faith 
or do we define ourselves according to the world's standards? So what does it mean to walk in light? He answers that as well. It means holding on to the teachings of Jesus. Look in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's amazing how this verse is often taken out of context. Truth comes from holding on to Jesus' teachings. That's what walking in light is. Boy, it's hard to do. But that's it. It means walking away from and avoiding a life of sin. Look in verse 34. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. By the way, that's what adoption is all about. You were purchased out of the slave market of sin and adopted as children. That's why Paul uses that imagery. If a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son or daughter belongs forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Turning to the Lord. It means demonstrating faithfulness as Abraham did. Look in verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answered. They're still trying to counter him. So he says, if you're Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? The Lord said, go, and he went. He had no idea where he was going. Faith always has action. Okay? Always. He said, go, and Abraham went. He didn't question it. He just went. Do you do that when the Lord tells you? Now, do you obey these commands in the Scripture? People come to me all the time and say, I'm trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. Okay, for Thessalonians, give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you. No, 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 no. I meant who I should marry or what kind of career I should have. Oh, I thought you said you want to know what God's will is. Well, I do. Okay, for Thessalonians, give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you. It's pretty clear. Right after that, avoid sexual immorality for this is God's will for you. Do you do that? Let's start with the basics. What is God's will? Living a pure life. Being, cultivating a heart of thankfulness. That's God's will. Do you do that first? You'll never answer the questions on career well until you do that first. And finally, it means trusting God, and only then will you hear the truth. Look in verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and now I am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. So why is my language unclear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Okay, let's put it all together. Do you have a thirst? Are you cultivating a thirst that only the Lord can quench? If not, you might as well hang it up and go home now. <laughs> it's called it a day. Are you cultivating that thirst? Are you intentionally figuring that out? It's your choice. Paul says, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's your choice. But that's only the first part. Then the second part is to trust God. Only then will he answer your questions. You step out in faith first, then you get the answers. You get clarity. If Jesus were to speak into your life today, would you recognize it? How would you even know? When I lead people to the Lord, I'm very aware 
that the Lord has already been speaking to them for a long time. They just haven't learned to recognize his voice. But I do. You've experienced that with others, haven't you? So when the Lord speaks into your life, do you hear it? Do you understand it? Step out in faith. That's the first step. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, for, <clears throat> for being so gracious to us. What we saw in the desert, we experience in our lives. You provide refreshing water, water to care for us, to refresh us, to love us. Lord, just like the pillar of fire, we become aware the more we spend time with you of your presence with us all the time. You love us, you're with us, even when we can't see you, we can't hear you, and it seems like we're alone. You're ever-present. Thank you for that. Thank you for sending your son Jesus, in whom all these things find their culmination, and we look to him. Thank you, Jesus, for taking on that responsibility, that role, that sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to, to love you more, to follow you more deeply, and to live a life of faith. And Jesus, we pray these things in your name because we believe in you. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and receive the communion. Let me just say thank you. Thanks for being so generous. You're the ones making it possible for us to do all the things that we do. So I can't thank you enough.